Amen. Welcome to Creekside Church this morning. It's good to see all of you who are here. We serve a great God. It's great to be here to praise the King of Kings. Uh, I just wanted to read a couple of verses that I was looking at this morning. The psalmist says, Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. And that's what we're here to do this morning. We're here to proclaim his praise. And, and there's another passage in Isaiah. He writes down what the Lord says. And here's what the Lord said. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackal and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. So it kind of sounds like that's our purpose, right? To proclaim his praise. And so that's what we're here to do this morning. Excited to worship with you. If you're able, if you could stand up and, and join us as we sing. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. This coming Thursday, October 7th at 9.30 a.m., there's a women's missionary outreach. Uh, again, that's at 9.30. On Saturday, next Saturday, we have uh, the Creekside Cleanup Day, and that's from 9 to noon. Um, so uh, we encourage you to come out and help with that. Um, Sunday, on uh, I guess it'd be three weeks from today, there's a Get to Know Us luncheon that will be immediately after the service right back here. Uh, if you are fairly new to Creekside, please join us with that. It's a good chance to get to know people. I was going to also mention... Um, I know that, uh, just a reminder, everybody uh, keep praying for our, our team in, in Haiti. Uh, I know that we're doing that at our home, and, and I encourage uh, everyone to do that. Uh, what a great outreach that is for those, those seven that are there. Um, also, as a direct result, a little bit of that, um, Wednesday nights, as you know, we, we host Awana uh, for the kids, and there's a few of the people that are in... Um, Haiti that also help with Awanas. I'm just, I'm just saying, if you guys are not busy on a Wednesday night, talk to Mary or Mark Klein and, and uh, volunteer. There's nothing like, there's nothing like watching little kids uh, uh, memorize and, and talk to you their Bible verses that they've learned. I know that I'm blessed every, every week that I come. So um, with that, I just, I throw that out. Um, I'm all done except for uh, kids. At this time, you can go. Uh, you were dismissed to Sunday school, and we just don't want Steve to stop in the middle of his sermon and remember to send the kids out. So here we go. Thanks, Tom. And uh, I would just like to echo uh, Tom's uh, appreciation for our, our talented folks that serve us each week on Sunday mornings up here. I know that group rotates and changes, but... Uh, it just blesses my heart to uh, be able to worship and to be encouraged by people who are gifted and using their gifts to encourage us in the body of Christ in, uh, in the way that they do and planning and preparing and leading us in worship. So thank you all again very much. And for the Get to Know Us lunch, if you would like to join us, please RSVP, please email Megan 
at creeksidedm.com. That would be good. We'd appreciate that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are blessed and privileged to be here this morning. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would hear the word of God for what it is, not the word of men, but the word of God, and that we would respond, respond in an appropriate way, that your spirit would work in us to draw us to yourselves. We pray that those who are still <clears throat> skeptics, critics, uh, antagonists to Christ would be drawn to you. And those of us who know you, we pray that we might be drawn closer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us have heard the saying, maybe you haven't, but many have heard the saying, there are only two things guaranteed in life, death and taxes, right? Well, it's the latter. Uh, actually, actually, most people don't like either one, but... It's, it's the latter one, the taxes, that becomes the touch point, the pivot point, the point of conflict in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 20, because it's this idea of a century-old struggle of, of people who are spiritual wondering how it is we fit into a secular world and what is our relationship with this secular world and are we to be those who are serving the secular or since we're spiritual people and so it's that that the the that tension that conflict that struggle that the antagonists of Jesus leveraged to attempt to discredit him to attempt to destroy him attempt to bring him down. They taught to, to do this. And so in the first of three confrontations that we find in Matthew chapter 22 that are initiated by the religious leaders, it's this issue of paying taxes but really submission to the government authority that Jesus deals with in Matthew chapter 22 verses 15 through uh, 22. But what he's doing here is he's emphasizing in, in this conflict, he emphasizes their rebellion while at the same time encouraging them to still accept him, not, not to reject him, but to accept him. And he does all that by showing us what our responsibility is. So by showing us our responsibility to God and government, Jesus is exposing rebellion against God and encouraging people to accept him for who he is as the Messiah. I'd invite you, if you would, uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 because in, in, in this section, in verses 15 through 22, there are three scenes in this conflict. And three scenes in the conflict expose religious hypocrisy and encourage intimacy with Jesus by clarifying what is our responsibility to God and government. I'm going to read the text. I'm going to read the text beginning with verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you're not, you're not partial to anybody. You're not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give poll tax to Caesar or not? 
But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on it? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they marveled. And in hearing this, they marveled. And leaving him, they went away. It's a pretty masterful interaction here, I think, between Jesus and his detractors. And the first step that we see, or the first scene in this action of revealing to us God and government, is that first of all, uh, our responsibility is challenged. What is the responsibility? It's kind of a challenge here. What, are, we, are we to be responsible to Caesar or not? And so the scene unfolds in a couple of parts. There's a plot to undermine Jesus. And there are two parts to the plot that we want to talk about that expose this challenge. And the first is the conception of the plot. The text begins with then. Okay, uh, we, Kyle last week had, uh, we had seen that you know, Jesus is talking about this marriage feast. And he had uh, talked about who's coming to the wedding and what, what kind of clothes you got on, which was the last of three parables that Jesus used to, used to indict the the, the crazy people who were out against him, okay? Well, then, Jesus did, well, then. Jesus is still in the temple, okay? And it's after the judgment parables that had revealed and rebuked their religious pretense and unbelief. Then they come to Jesus, the Pharisees. Now, we know from back in chapter 12, verse 14, they were seeking to destroy him. So we're 10 chapters later in the, in the history, and they, they were seeking to destroy him. And it says, it, they went out and they counseled together. Uh, I think the ESV says they plotted. Okay, They plotted together how they might trap him in, in what he said. Now, throughout his public ministry, and especially in the last few days, Jesus has pretty much made uh, buffoons of these people. I mean, he's kind of gone into the temple and ransacked the temple and he's ridiculed them and he's told these parables that kind of put them on the spot and humiliated them and frustrated them to no end, okay? He condemned their self-righteousness and their pious positions and their hypocrisy. Now, how did they respond to that? Well, <laughs> certainly not with humble repentance, okay? We, we just got done singing songs about how wonderful the name of Jesus is, how majestic our God is, how awesome He is, and what our response ought to be to the King of Kings. And here they are in the presence of the King of Kings. And they have been proven to be hypocrites and pretenders. And yet they're so entrenched in their power, position, and their pride that they will not give up. No, He's got to go. We don't have to change. That's who we are as human beings. You point something out wrong with me, it's not my problem. That's our, our, our default mentality. It's, it's, it's your problem. God's on the throne. I'm not submitting to anyone. This is an exposure of the proud spirit of unbelief. And he does it very, he, he does it very well. Okay, So 
Luke tells us this in Luke 2020, which is a parallel passage, that they sought to catch him in some statement. No, they weren't humble. They weren't broken. No, they're going to trap him. Catch him in some statement as to, so as to deliver him up to the rule and the authority of the governor. You know, I think about Jesus here, and it made me, or it brought my mind back to Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel was uh, really in with the king. Darius, okay? But the other guys were jealous. And so they sought an occasion against Daniel. And so what did they do? They had the king make an edict that would make Daniel's obedience to God a violation of the law. To trap him. This is the despicable nature of human beings. They sought to destroy him. Well, I want to tell you folks, living for Jesus can bring even the ire of the most religious people. Okay, Jesus was uh, under the ire and under the criticism of the most religious people. That's the plot was conceived. Now the plot is carried out in verses 16 and 17. And the three parts to the plot that I'm going to highlight. First of all, there, is the me- there are the messengers of the plot. Uh, text says, and they, and then the Pharisees, who were... Not really favorable to Rome, okay, Roman rule. And they were the most ardent detractors of Jesus, okay. So these are the the people that dislike Jesus the most, okay. So they're there, and they they sent their disciples. (laughs) That's what the text says. It's like, so they sent their cronies. You know, they had some understudies. They had some interns. And so they sent the interns out, out to do their dirty work disguising themselves probably because they didn't want Jesus to know that, well, they'd fooled Jesus because they, he wouldn't know that these were the people that were the most hostile towards him. In vain, they pretended to be uh, curiosity people, really interested in Jesus um, and wanted to know. Uh, they answered to a question that burned in the minds of all the Jewish people, most of the Jewish people. Okay, so the question they asked Jesus is something that a lot of the Jewish people were concerned about. And so they come pretending that they really want to know the answer about the, 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 the dreaded poll tax. Should we really pay it or not? Disguising themselves. I know some of you have heard the, the story and maybe seen some of the videos. I wouldn't recommend watching the videos without uh, some parental discretion. But the, there was a group that sent some undercover people into Planned Parenthood clinics and exposed the fact that they were actually, uh, you know, uh, marketing trafficking in fetal tissue, okay? They were selling uh, fetal, fetal tissue. They, they, they went in undercover. These guys go in, supposedly, undercover to trap Jesus. And they went along with the Herodians, okay? The Herodians were very much in favor of Rome, thus the name Herodians, because Herod was the king, you know, or many Herods, so they were in favor of Rome. These were unlikely partners in this crime, okay? Because they didn't really like each other. And so the unlikely collaborators had found a common enemy. Neither one of them liked Jesus, and they liked Jesus so little that they would work together even though they didn't like each other, okay? And so there was this collaboration for for the Jew for the the Herodians and the Pharisees it was this and maybe you've heard this the enemy of my enemy is my friend 
Okay? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they had a common enemy, and so they joined forces against Jesus. Now, that's, those are the messengers. Now, what is the, the, there's this manipulation that takes place in the plot. <clears throat> if you look at verse 16, And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher. So, teacher is a term of respect, uh, acknowledgement of authority, of wisdom. And so they say, teacher. And we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. As John MacArthur says, they affirmed both his personal and doctrinal integrity. You're a person of truth and you speak the truth, you know. So that you don't, you don't seek anyone's favor because you're not partial to any. So Jesus is an upstanding guy. He's a straight-up guy. He's not a politician. You know, he doesn't really care what people think. He just speaks the truth, and he doesn't really, uh, not influenced by other people's impression, other people's thoughts. And so that's what they're saying about Jesus. We know you're going to tell us the truth, and you're going to shoot straight from the hip, and you don't really care who gets it. You have courage because you're not, you're not so petty as to be concerned about how people, how people think or what people think. Um, everything they said was true, but they didn't believe a bit of it. Their disingenuous statements were actually intended to, it was a form of flattery, intended to get Jesus to let his guard down so he'd speak rashly without any filter. They were hoping he would just kind of like cut loose, you know, and say something really stupid. And then they could destroy him. I don't know if you've heard this a few weeks, maybe it was last week, I mean it was just past week. A guy running for the governorship of Virginia, uh, Terry McAuliffe. He basically, he stood up at a debate and he said, you know what? Uh, the parents don't have a right to tell the schools what to teach their kids. Uh, he got kind of hot water because of that statement. Uh, I mean, I think he believes it, but, uh, you know, he just kind of blurted it out there. Well, that's what the Herodians and the disciples of Jesus, the Fer or disciples of the Pharisees, the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to do is to blurt some stupid statement out. But everything they said about him was accurate. And what they said was accurate in the sense that it identified who he really is. He is not just the one who speaks the truth of God. He is the truth of God. And he's not someone who's easily influenced by other people's opinions or ideas, which is really stupid when you think about it, because what are they trying to do? They're trying to influence him through their ideas. Oh, Jesus, you don't defer to anybody. You're not influenced by these, you know, these uh, petty uh, people and what they think of you. But we're going to tell you how wonderful you are so that you'll say something stupid, because you'll be influenced by what we say. Do <clears throat> you see the hypocrisy of it, the irony of it? It's like they don't even get it. <laughs> Had they really believed that Jesus spoke the truth of God? Had they really believed it, they would have repented of their sins and trusted in him right then and there. But they didn't. Then we see the message. Verse 17. Uh, tell us, therefore, what do you think 
<clears throat> is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Well, they were hoping that he'd be so intoxicated on their praise of him that he would blurt out something that would incriminate him. But you understand that the first century Jews really didn't like the Romans' taxation system very well. Okay? Uh, they were felt overburdened and heavily taxed, and they resented it. And they especially didn't like the poll tax. Now, the poll tax wasn't that great. It was just like one day's wage, but it was just added on to the other taxes. And for reasons I'll discuss in a minute, they really, really didn't like it. And they thought that if you feared God, you shouldn't have to be beholden to Caesar. And so they really didn't like that pagan tax. Now, the poll tax was paid by every adult male uh, in, in, the, in the Roman Empire. And it was particularly offensive to the Israelites because the poll tax was paid using a coin that had the image of Caesar on it. And on one side and on the other side, the image, it said that he was a high priest or God and high priest. And so the obligation of, of God's people in the world for centuries is an issue that we struggle with. And even today we struggle with it. What is our obligation to the government given the fact that we're followers of, of God? So here's the deal. If Jesus said that the poll tax was lawful, he would offend the Jewish people who despised paying taxes to Rome and who thought that it was part and parcel of worshiping a false god. Caesar, because in Rome, the Caesars made themselves out to be God. And if, they, if he said it was lawful, then guess what? The Pharisees could swoop right in and take him out because the crowds would have, he would have lost the support of the crowd, right? Because it said that the crowds feared him and respected him and thought he was a prophet. But if he's going to stand up and support Rome, done. No re-election there. But if he said that it was unlawful, to pay poll tax to Caesar. Well, he's got all the Herodians who are cheerleaders for Caesar over here, and they would be the prime candidates called in to testify that this guy was an insurrectionist. And you know what Rome did with insurrectionists. You know, it's like, you're done. So either way, Jesus would have lost. His fate would have been sealed. So there we have the challenge. What do you do? What do you say? And now we move to the second scene when which our responsibility to God and the government is, is clarified. And there are two steps Jesus took to discredit and to diffuse the plot. Clarifying our responsibility uh, to God and to the government. First of all, he uncovers the plot. Okay, The plot is uncovered if you look at verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice. I love that. He perceived their malice. Uh, Luke 20, verse 20, tells us that they, they pretended to be. They, they were pretending to be righteous. And Jesus is not fooled by pretense. And isn't it interesting that he's just told three parables that has laid them out bare before them that they're, he knows when they're pretending. But they're, they're pretty stubborn, and so they keep after it. Did, did we think that China is really our friend when they show up like during the departure from Afghanistan 
to stand beside the Taliban, I think we can determine that there's a little malice there towards, towards the United States. It's not rocket science. Jesus knew that they were not his friends. And so Jesus, the plot is uncovered. He realized their malice. And then secondly, what he did is he rebuked it. He rebuked it. Uh, there's a good cross-examination here. Jesus goes on the offensive and he asks several questions. Rebuking that malice and exposing it. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? What did they just say about Jesus? Oh, Jesus, you're, you're a teacher and you speak the truth of God uh, without partiality to anyone. <laughs> yeah, including you. Hypocrites. I, you're the pretenders. <laughs> you're the pretenders. He proclaimed their perverted purpose. And he proved himself truthful. He's told the truth. And he was not partial. You're hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? a play actor, someone who wears a mask. It's not really who they are. They're performing. And so these were the performers. And how did he know that they were pretenders? How did he know they're hypocrites? It's not conclusive evidence, but it's an indication of his deity. He's not fooled easily. Then he unraveled the plot. He begins to unravel here. Uh, he asks them, uh, before, he, I'm sorry, he rebuked them. Then I want to see this. He, he, first of all, he realized that then he rebuked them. I, I, I skipped over uh, the end of verse 18. Important question here. Why are, you, why are you seeking, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Now he goes on, show me the coin for the poll tax. Okay, Show me the coin. Good question. He's unraveling it now. Still in the temple where Jesus had overturned the money changers and they come to him concerned about whether we should pay the poll tax or not. And Jesus says, oh, okay, uh, 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 like, do you have a coin that we use to pay the poll tax? Oh, yeah, by the way, we have one here. Oh, really? So you really have a problem with paying the poll tax, but you're carrying poll tax money around in your pocket. Jesus didn't have one, but they did, and apparently uh, he, he got you. Oh, yeah, we have one. Oh, maybe we shouldn't have said that. Yes, you do. Next, he highlighted what offended them most. He says, well, whose likeness is on it? Image. This is the same word, uh, base word that you have back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make any image or likeness. See, this was the problem the Jewish people had with the poll tax because Caesar had his image on the coin and therefore, and called himself God because the, the, the image was of Caesar and the inscription on the back said that he was the high priest or some of the time it said he was high priest and God. So we have a violation of 
the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before you, have a violation of the second commandment, you shall not make yourself any likeness or image of God. So that was the problem they had. They felt like they were practicing idolatry and being blasphemous if they paid the poll tax. <laughs> they unwittingly held in their hands the idolatrous and blasphemous violation of God's law which they said they were concerned about finding out the answer to, whether it was right. And they sanctimoniously expected Jesus now to condemn it. Hypocrites. And what he said next was really profound. He says, well then render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, Give Caesar what is due and to God what is due to him. And so he answered now the second part wasn't part of the ask the ask was shall we pay the poll tax right so the second part's an add-on but by answering and saying both government and god he took away both of their opportunities to get him because the pharisees wanted him to say well give it to the government so that the jews would hate him and the Herodians were hoping that he'd say, don't give it to the government so that they could get him. And he said, well, give it to both. Give God and give, give government and give God. And so they were upset. No legitimate grounds for discrediting him or disowning him or destroying him now. But what did he mean? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render means to pay the obligation. Or to give what's due, okay? So give Caesar what's due to Caesar. He was declaring it's right, it's lawful for the Jews to pay the tax to Caesar, okay? He's not a god, so don't worry about that. Just pay the tax, because actually whose stamp and image is on the coin? It's, 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 it's Caesar, so really, it's his, give it to him. I mean, it came from his kingdom, it's part of his, his deal, so don't worry about it. Just give him the money. See, God's people, and if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, that's you. Uh, God's people are to honor God and obey God by submitting to the God-given authority and by paying our taxes, even to corrupt, dishonest, and pagan governments of which Rome is a prime example, and I would argue that America is too. Uh, but we realize that God's in control. And what has God told us through the Apostle Paul, speaking a little bit later than this particular time, but still like in the first century, in Romans chapter 13, the, the, the universal uh, commands are still there. Look at the screen. He says, Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. For us to resist authority, the government authority is to oppose God. Right? And to oppose the ordinance of God, and ultimately to God himself. That's Romans chapter 13, verse 2. Peter echoes the same thing. Now, I have the wrong passage up here, so you can write this down. I, I, I sent 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. It's part of it, but it should include verse 13 as well. Submit to those who are in authority over you. Okay? 
It's the same just as Romans chapter 13, but as Peter writes it, okay? So we're supposed to submit. If people under a pagan dictator were supposed to pay the poll tax and submit to authority, how much more should we, who live in a Republican form of government, that's not a political party, that's just, okay, new history, okay? It's a Republican form of government. It's not a democracy, it's a republic that we live under that was established and founded by the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence and all that kind of stuff and the Bill of Rights um, and so on. We're called to submit to. See, God-fearing people, Christians, should be law-abiding, tax-paying, respectful citizens of the country in which we live. That's what God calls us to. Well, okay, then you go, well, okay, but what if, what if they ask me to do something I don't like? What if they ask me to pay more than my fair share? What if I don't like where they're sending my money and using my money for, or what they're using it for? Well, I've got uh, just some ideas here that I wanted to bring before you. First of all, keep perspective. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 uh, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing before him. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven and on earth. And nobody can say to him, what are you doing? Or stop him. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The heart of the king is like rivers of water in the hands of the Lord. And he directs it wherever he wills. Romans 13. All authority is given by God. So we keep perspective that God is still in control. Okay, I don't have to like it. I just have to understand that God somehow is sovereignly working, that he's still in control. But I don't stop there with just the perspective. I rest in it. Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When I am afraid, that's Psalm 27. One. When, I am, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I will put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 55, verse 4. I think it's verse 4. Perspective. Secondly, pray. Pray. We're, we're commanded to do this in... First Timothy chapter 2. So we're supposed to pray. My question is, do we, are we as devoted to pray for our leaders as we are to denounce them? I don't know about you. It's, I, I mean, boom. I, I can find when they make a mistake or they find, I can find fault with them. But am I as committed to pray for my leaders as I am to denounce them? Do we pray for their salvation? Do we pray for their conviction that they would be convicted by the Spirit of God to, about things that are wrong, that are unbiblical, that are unethical, immoral? Do we pray that God would bring people into their lives that would shine the light of Jesus and show them the, how they can know Christ? Do we pray that God would foil their plans that are against His will? Do we pray that God would work in their hearts 
and bring them. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Do I mourn over the spiritual condition of the people who are making what I would consider to be uh, immoral decisions? This is the challenge that, that, that I have in my own heart. And finally, we participate. See, in America, it's a blessed thing. We can be involved. We can write letters. We can get involved. We can vote. We can run for office. We can do all kinds of stuff and actually make a difference for Jesus. And for the, the good of the kingdom, we can influence policy change. That, that's a, a possibility we have. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay? And then he says, render to God the things that are God's. And they are not the same. The add-on actually elevates our submission to God to its rightful place of superiority over all of life. So that I'm first and foremost as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm submitted to God, not the government. Okay? And so is everyone else. The things that are God's do not belong to Caesar. <laughs> nor should I submit them to Caesar. They belong to God exclusively. He deserves my fullest devotion. He deserves my first of everything. Matthew chapter 22, uh, which we're, we'll be getting to. Uh, Bob will be preaching on it in a few weeks. Uh, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Give to God the things that are God's. What does God require and ask for? He asks for everything. Our life. That's what He wants. He wants everything. Authentic spirituality that puts a love for and service to God, His Word, and His kingdom first. That's what He asks for, and that's what He calls for, and that's what He deserves above everything else. In verse, in chapter 21, uh, verse 32, it says, when John came in the way of righteousness, you did not believe him, but the tax gatherers and hogs. I didn't say that right. Yeah, in Matthew 21, 32, we're to believe in him. Forget Matthew 21, 32. Okay. We're supposed to give our whole to Him. We need to ask God to protect our hearts so that He has first place in everything. What's more important? My job? My health? My kids? More important than God? No, nothing. God should be the supreme thing. And he is, deserves our utmost allegiance, obedience, and adoration above everything. And it begins with us yielding to him. It begins with us recognizing that we are wicked people who deserve to spend an eternity apart from him, recognizing our and realizing our end, and then repenting of our sins and turning and trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, surrendering us to him immediately and ultimately is the beginning. And then continually, each day, offering ourselves up in worship and praise to Him. Offering my person, my possessions, my pleasures, my plans, everything to Him. This is 
what it means to give God what God deserves and not to give it to the government. Okay? Human leaders have a right to ask us to pay taxes and to support our, our government, right? That, that's fine, and obey the laws. But they do not have a right to outlaw Christianity or outlaw its practices or command me to do something that's contrary to God's word and his practice and his, and his truth. They don't have a right to command me to worship them. They don't have a, com- a right to command me to be in obedience to them in conflict with God. And when they usurp their authority to the place that it doesn't belong, and when they try to take over and overstep their God-given authority, then I have every right not to obey. Because I obey God. And not them. I'm thinking of Pastor James Coates, a pastor up in uh, Calgary, uh, I think it was Calgary in uh, Alberta, Canada, went to jail because... He said, God commands us as a body of believers to gather together to worship, and we're going to worship, and we're not going to be restricted by the government who says we can't worship. Pastor John MacArthur, Grace Community Church in California, same thing. They were told you can't have more than 50 people or whatever of a congregation, probably of 5,000 or 10,000. I don't know how many go there, but you can't. And, and they, he said, we're not, we're not listening to that. We're going to do it. They just won the lawsuit against Los Angeles County and against the state of California, which said that was a, a breach of their religious freedom. Now, even if they hadn't won the lawsuit, see, that's not the point that they won the lawsuit. The point is, Would you obey God or men? Now, I'm not saying there's a lot of these things you ought to stand on, but I'm telling you what, I believe that in America we're coming to a point in uh, in history that we've never been before. Whereas the people of God are going to be pressed on this. The people of God are going to be challenged on this. We're going to have to decide whether we're obeying God more than men. And to what degree we're willing to stand up and, and, and follow the king. And not the king big K not the king little k. Okay. This is the challenge that we face. But you know, don't lose sight that God uses ungodly governments and, and uncomfortable situations and challenges for his purposes. Okay. Sometimes God is using evil, uh, what we, you know, things that are against God's word and will and way to punish sin. I mean, think Israel in Babylon. I mean, Babylon wasn't a fun place to live, but it was a place that they went because they had sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned, and God was calling them to repentance and to return to Him. Like what John Calvin says, when God wants to judge a, a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. It might be for purifying. Remember Esther? Well, that was a tough that was a tough nut to crack, right? Esther and Mordecai, and we're going to slaughter all of, the, all of the Jewish people, and uh, Esther's up there, and she's the queen, and what's she going to do? Purifying, testing her faith. Is she going to stand up for her faith? Are we going to stand up for our faith, or are we going to just roll over and play dead? Because it's uncomfortable. Or it just might be part of God's plan that we can't understand. I mean, how many years was, were the children of Israel in Egypt anyway? Yeah, 400. Try that one on for size. 
well, you know, 400 years of just being a slave, uh, you know, building the pyramids or whatever, you know, just kind of doing that for fun. And uh, then, then, then it says in the beginning of Exodus, and God heard their cry. <laughs> really? 400 years later. It's part of God's plan. We don't have to like it. We have to understand that God demands and deserves our supreme allegiance and our supreme obedience. We're supposed to serve and seek and serve Him every single day. Submitting to Him first and then also to our government and our government authorities as best we can without compromising our convictions. As Christians, I believe God has called us to expose the darkness. doesn't mean that we don't say what is going on is wrong. We expose the darkness because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And when we expose the darkness, we do it so that we can exhort people to repent and have faith in Christ so that they can experience the new life that we have in Jesus. Because if I never call sin, sin, then people don't need to turn from their sin. They don't need to repent. If they don't repent, then they aren't redeemed. Now, the challenge is to do that with humility. Because I'm not better than them. Because I've been redeemed, but not because of me, but because of Christ. So I don't pass over sin, but I don't pontificate and look down on people because of it. And neither do you. We point out their sins so they can experience new life in Christ. And when they have new life in Christ, then we encourage obedience and followership to the truth of God's Word because human flourishing is best accomplished through God's plan and purposes. If you follow God's Word, things kind of work out. If you go against God's Word, not so much. And we're moving against God's word. The tide is, is, is against God's word. I mean, it's, it's like red tide. Whew. It's nasty stuff. And uh, it's not pleasant. It's toxic. And it will hurt us. But we need to stand firm in God's word and rest in his sovereign control and be the people of God where we're at. Best we can do. Okay? So there is the challenge to us. Now we've clarified it. And then Jesus confirms it, I think. It's my think, uh, in verse 22. There are three responses uh, that those who were sent have that I think punctuate and also show the power and propriety of what Jesus did in laying out our responsibility to God and government. So what's the first thing that they do? They marvel. What a wonderful name it is. What a marvelous name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. It's like, oh. Yeah, we, we didn't see that coming. Oh, give to Caesar and give to God. Didn't see that coming. They marveled, the text says. They were marveling at Jesus. Then they were, this is an end. Matthew, but it's in the parallel Luke. They were silenced. They, they didn't say anything. Whoop. I met a guy in, in Hungary. He was the 1972 jiu-jitsu champion in Hungary. And uh, he had his own uh, 
shall we say, business where uh, he was contractor for the, the government and other people to provide security. Uh, because he was a well-trained uh, former Hungarian soldier, former jiu-jitsu champion, and so he was on security detail. So sometimes when the president would travel, his, his group would do security detail. So he took us to his little gym, and he was telling me and another guy who's the meekest, mildest, gentlest guy on the planet uh, how, you know, you protect yourself. And so he says, guy, come behind you and, uh, and grab you. <laughs> and then he, he says, turn around. And then he uh, made some motions with his fist uh, that would uh, kind of go into the person's certain body parts. Game over. Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and Herodians masterfully, gently, graciously. And they were silenced. Game over. He didn't destroy them right there. But it was over. And then they walked away with their tail between their legs. I added that. Uh, humiliated. What could they do? Now, astute observation by Sean McDonald in his commentary is this. He says... That is the opposite of what we are to do. Walk away from Jesus. See, if you're here this morning and you're listening to this and you are maybe one of the detractors of Jesus or maybe you're one of the critics of Jesus, maybe you're just an antagonist against Jesus, here's how Jesus dealt with those people. But he doesn't want you to walk away. He doesn't want you to, to, to scram. He wants you to surrender. He's inviting, still offering, the chance to surrender in our pride and our arrogance and our self-righteousness, our self-sufficiency, that we would surrender our life to him and turn from our sinful way and trust in Jesus and enjoy what it means to be in a relationship with the God of the universe who came to these people and they were so belligerent, obnoxious, and rude that they couldn't see that he was offering them life, hope. And that's what Jesus would want for you. And that's what I would plead. Don't make their mistake. Don't walk away. Turn and trust him. Don't try to trap him. Don't trip over him. Remember a few weeks ago, you trip over Jesus, then he'll, <laughs> ultimately that ends not well, uh, pulverizing you. Jesus not only speaks the truth, he is the truth, and nobody comes to the Father but by Him, the way, the truth, and the life. So come to Jesus. Repent and turn. Don't rebel. And if you know Jesus, then give to Caesar what Caesar gets, okay? Pay your taxes, obey the government, as long as it doesn't act, ask you to do something that's contrary to what God has clearly stated in your word. And I have a challenge. Will you pray for your leaders? Not just speak ill of them. Let's pray for our leaders. Commit. Will you commit to pray for your leaders? And then give to God our great allegiance. Give Him our time, our talents, our treasures. Give Him our head, our heart, our hands. What are you doing for Jesus? Ask yourself. I'm challenging you. If you know Christ, ask yourself, is there some part of my life that I haven't 
given fully in allegiance to God. And what a, what a way to demonstrate that we are giving to God the things that are God's other than to worship Him and remember His mercy and celebrate and praise Him for His mercy in offering His Son as a sacrifice for our sins as we take the bread, the wafer, and the juice as a declaration of gratitude, reflecting upon it, and rejoicing in what God has done for us as a way to worship Him and give Him the praise He deserves. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this passage in which Jesus has shown us our responsibility to You and to the government as a means of exposing religious hypocrisy, as a means of encouraging those who are rejecting and rebelling to turn and trust in You. We pray asking that You would give us grace as believers to walk worthy as your servants and those who don't know you, Lord, I pray they would turn and trust you today in Christ's name.